0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Scripture for today is Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The spring break of my senior year in college, a couple of my best friends Uh, decided to organize this backpacking trip down in Arizona uh, to a place called Havasupai, this little primitive village uh, down kind of in the middle of nowhere uh, on an offshoot of one of the uh, tributaries into the Grand Canyon. And uh, two of us were engaged, Uh, we were about to graduate, and so we knew that this was going to be a big change that was coming up. And so we wanted to celebrate. Another one of us, my, my friend Dave, had just overcome stomach cancer. And, uh, and so we just thought, man, this is such a great opportunity. Let's do this backpacking trip together before we all go our separate ways. And so we made a long road trip from Omaha, Nebraska, down to Arizona, and we parked in this super remote place and started backpacking down into this desert. And I had no idea what I'd signed up myself up for. Uh, my friend Aaron had organized the trip and he said, this is gonna be amazing. We're gonna, uh, uh, it's gonna be great. Don't Google it. Let me just surprise you with what is coming up. So we start walking into the desert And uh, before long, the car, you can't see the car anymore, and it's hot, it's Arizona. And so it was just, uh, and it's like seven or eight miles to where we were going. I think at about mile five, I'm starting to go, oh, do we have water? Do we have enough food for this? And trusting my friend Aaron, trusting in his promise, promise, trusting in his leadership, and it was just follow me. Um, And so we were going down, and then all of a sudden you could start to hear water, and there was trees that you could see, and all of a sudden you heard this rushing. And uh, as we came around this corner... Uh, all of a sudden, what opened up right in front of us was Havasu Falls, which I think there's a picture of here. Havasu Falls, which is on your, uh, this side, whatever side that is for you, your left, and just this beautiful waterfall that just takes your breath away, 120 feet tall, just picturesque, this greenish-blue water cascading down, and we came around this, and we're just like, oh, it's true, Aaron didn't lead us out here to die, We were, we came to this, there's water, and we had... We were able to fill our water bottles and just enjoy this this spot. And and he said, just wait, there's more. And so we hiked down through this primitive village that you can only get to by donkey or helicopter. And uh, we walked down, we were going down, and then we came to that one that's on your right. And uh, Moon Falls, which is just epic. It's 200 plus feet tall, just gorgeous rushing waterfall. And there's a campsite right on the very top of it. And Aaron knew that that was the place we wanted to go. We wanted to get there quick to make sure we could claim that campsite, and we did. We got there. We were passing other people to make sure we got it, and we camped on the top of that 200-plus foot waterfall, and uh, which was a little, um, a little unnerving in the middle of the night because you're next to a waterfall, so you're getting up to go to the bathroom like every couple hours, and you got to watch where you step because there's a big chasm right there. But it was just, it was awesome. He kept his promise. It took our breath away. It was amazing to see what was around the corner, and it was greater than any of our expectations. Um, It was just an awesome time, and one of my greatest memories was that backpacking trip, as we just thought about our time together, and what was ahead, and all the life changes, and all that God had done in our lives, and it was just an awesome trip. And similarly, in Matthew chapter 13, these people have been following Jesus, his disciples, these crowds, and there's been a variety of expectations. It's kind of like they've been walking through this Wilderness, they've seen Jesus do some amazing things, but it's also a little bit different. Um, They're not quite sure exactly what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing. He's claiming to be a kingdom, he has the credentials. And as you walk through the book of Matthew, we we see that Jesus fulfills so many of the Old Testament promises. He's got the credentials. And then as he's going around doing things, he's healing people. It looks like he has creator type powers, Uh, but yet he's not taking up the sword against Rome. The Jewish establishment seems to be against him and hostile to him, and so this kingdom just looks really strange. He in Matthew chapter five through seven he gave his speech on what his kingdom is going to be like, the values of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom, and it's just way upside down from anything anyone would have expected. And then as, as you go through, you begin to see that there's this mixed response to Jesus' kingdom. I mean, if this is God in the flesh who's come to set up a kingdom, why in the world isn't everybody joining? Why is there this mixed response? And so as Jesus goes down on the Sea of Galilee, he gets into a boat and he begins to teach the crowd and his disciples parables about the kingdom. And and, and what he's doing is he's he's using these pictures to sort of calibrate their expectations, to help them understand what the kingdom is going to be like. And in in some ways, the kingdom is going to be different than they expected. That's what the first few parables talked about was how it's going to have a little bit different response than you think. But the parables that we're going to look at today of the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the the parable of the the pearl of great price uh, tells us that this kingdom will blow your mind. It is worth everything. And so that's where we're at is we're going to turn the corner here. And we have been in Matthew 13 and getting just this picture of what to expect of Jesus' kingdom and to behold it through these parables. Now, when you come to a great waterfall like this, you don't come to it and and say, what can I do to make this waterfall better? You simply come to it and you simply just behold it. You just enjoy it. You just revel in it. And I think that when we have this inclination sometimes when we come to this particular text is to hear what the kingdom is like and then to think, what should I do? And really, the application for almost all of these parables is just just behold it. Just drink from it. Just delight in it. You, you can't take your water bottle and pour it in the waterfowl and make it any better. You can't go to the Grand Canyon with your shovel and make it just a little wider. I guess you could. But the idea is just, no, just, just take it in. This is a gift to you. This is not something that you have earned. This is not something that you have achieved. This is something that you simply, by God's grace, get to enjoy and participate in and revel in. And that's really the, the heart of these parables. Is, is, it, it's not about stuff that you do. It's about what God has done and is offering to the world. And so it's, it's like this, this waterfall. You're like, I had nothing to do with this. And it's glorious and it's gorgeous and I just want to revel in it. And that's really what we want to do with these parables. And so in Matthew 13, we've looked at One, two, three, four parables so far. And I think I have these on the slide. Jesus is calibrating our expectations of his kingdom with these parables. Some are going to get it and be all in. Some are not going to get it, and they're going to go, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to look for a different kingdom. And so Jesus is, is sort of dividing the crowd with these parables. Some will get it, some will have eyes to see and ears to hear, and some won't. And if you have eyes to see what the kingdom is like, your heart will be drawn to it. And so in parable number one, the parable of the sower that we looked at a few weeks ago, we see this, that the kingdom will go everywhere and it will have a variety of responses, but only a minority of that will actually work out. It's four different soils, right? The kingdom is like seed. It looks small. It's not very impressive, but it has a limited potential. And Jesus is that one who is scattering the seed everywhere. And we're going to see a variety of responses when it lands on human hearts. But only a minority are really going to get it. Only one in four in the parable really is there, what, uh, is there a fruitful response to it. So it just tells us that Jesus' kingdom is going to go everywhere. It's going to have a variety of responses, but only a minority will work out. So just don't be caught off guard when that happens. Don't be surprised when you see the kingdom not always conquering in the way that you think it should or, or, uh, or would. In parable number two, we have the parable of the weed and the weeds. And in that parable, we see that the kingdom has an enemy. The the farmer has sowed good seed in his field. And then in the middle of the night, an enemy has come and sowed bad seed in the field. It begins to grow up. And the servants of the master want to tear it up. Let's go fix it right now. And the owner goes, no, you'll ruin the good stuff. You won't be able to tell the difference between the good and the bad. So don't tear it up. The world is going to have this mixedness, the kingdom of God, and other kingdoms are going to grow up together, and you let me sort that out at the end. You let me take care of that. And so we see that the kingdom has an enemy, and the kingdom will grow up right next to counterfeits of the kingdom, alternative kingdoms, but God will fix it in the end. So we don't need to panic when we see rivals to the gospel rivals to the church rivals to the kingdom grow up god's going to take care of that we don't have to try to rage and fix it all so that was the second parable and then parables three and four that we looked at last week is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven jesus loved to use the idea of seed for the kingdom because it looks so small and unimpressive i mean even jesus himself looked unimpressive if you think you're the god if the god man was going to come into the world to rescue things if it was me and I was deciding, I would come down at halftime of the Super Bowl. I would just rip the skies. I would come down, and whoever it is, Beyonce or whoever is performing, step off to the side. I've got all these eyes on me. I'm going to come redeem the world. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes born to a young woman in, in the little-known Bethlehem, uh, very understated, very surprising, very hidden. He grows up in Nazareth, and Jesus, God, loves To do kind of the small unexpected thing. And that's really at the heart of this parable. Is that mustard seed is so small. But it is going to grow. It is going to work. And the kingdom is like leaven. In that it's going to work in ways that you can't see. And it's not going to take very much for it to transform the whole loaf. Three loaves. And so we saw that the kingdom is going to start small and insignificant. But it is working and it will succeed. So don't be Concerned about that when it's smaller than the other kingdoms when it's smaller It is going to work. It is going to succeed and so we're starting to get this picture as we put these things together That the kingdom is different than we expect and Jesus is calibrating our king our, our Expectations of the kingdom and if we're gonna follow him It's gonna look different than we might think but it's good and in fact That's the question that we have going into this particular parable is that if it's so small and so insignificant then maybe it's just not worth that much And then we have these parables here where it says in verses 44 and 46, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then Jesus does another parable that's similar, same basic point with a twist. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. let's look at that first parable for a minute. So we have a man, probably a a laborer, probably a poorer person, and maybe what he is doing is he is plowing this field. Maybe he's working for the owner of the field and he's working in this this rocky field, and all of a sudden as he's plowing along or digging a trench or putting in a fence or whatever it is that he's doing, all of a sudden his plow hits a, a wooden box or his shovel hits this metal box. And all of a sudden he realizes that in this kind of desolate field is this buried treasure and he finds it and it just totally changes his world as he finds this treasure. He never expected to find it. He's not looking for it, just going about his day and he trips over something that's going to change his life. He finds hidden treasure by accident. Now this wouldn't have been totally uncommon in those days because you've got Israel. Israel is a place where there's a lot of kingdoms that have swept in and out over the course of time. And you don't have banks. So if you have something of great value, and there are people out there, there's kingdoms up, upro- uprooting and going back and forth, then it's a good idea to, to take your valuables, and at times of distress, or times when there's robbers, or, or unsettledness in the world, you would go and you'd take your stuff and you'd bury it in some hidden spot. And it's possible that maybe the owner of that treasure gets killed, and then people just forget that there's a treasure there. You just, it's possible, and this is not uncommon in those times because you don't have any other way to protect your valuables. And so to hide them somewhere uh, makes a lot of sense. So this would not have been a totally uncommon idea, that you would just find treasure hidden in a field. And so the man, what he does is he covers it up. I doesn't want anyone else to know that it's there, right? Covers it back up, and then he goes, and it says that in his joy, he goes and just sells everything he has to buy the field. Now, this would have been so strange because no one knows the treasures there yet. And so he goes and he just liquidates everything. Imagine what his wife is thinking. There all of a sudden he goes and he is selling his baseball card collection. He is selling all of his favorite. He's selling his favorite bowling ball. He's selling, I mean, he's selling everything. The baby pictures, like he's just liquidating everything. And he is so delighted to do it. Something has changed in him that it's just like, I am going to sell everything and I'm going to buy that piece of dirt. And I can just just imagine the owner of that spot going, that dirt? Man, that thing hasn't produced crops in years. That is the most worthless piece of land. You want it and you're going to pay me that? Sure. And he buys it. He buys it. Something changed when he stumbled across this treasure that was willing to go. He looked at the treasure, looked at everything else he owned and went, that's better. I'm making the trade. I'm selling all of it to get this. And it would have looked so strange to those around him. He buys up everything in and around the kingdom. Sells his lucky socks. Sells his grandfather's old baseball glove. Just everything to get the treasure. And he does it in his joy to get the treasure. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. So the kingdom is even for poor people who aren't even looking for it. Right? They stumble upon it. And it's worth more than everything in his life combined. So how valuable is the kingdom? Well, what do you got? Well, let me just add up everything in my life, and it's a great trade to get the kingdom. That's the point of the first parable, is that even those that aren't looking for it, when they find it, it's worth more than everything they could ever, that they ever could have. It's worth trading everything and anything for. Which then brings us to the second parable, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So now we have a different character. First one is probably a poor laborer who just stumbles across it. The second is a merchant. He's probably pretty wealthy. He maybe does this pearl search thing as a job. He goes treasure hunting and he's got quite a bit of wealth because pearls were incredibly valuable. They're invaluable in our day but they were exponentially more valuable back in those days. In fact, Cleopatra's pearls, there's lots of legends about her and pearls. Apparently, two of her pearls were worth, uh, I think I wrote it down, 10 million uh, 10 million setterses, which I guess translates to anywhere from 600,000 to 4 billion dollars today in two pearls. So we're talking about elite level um, purchasing. This merchant is rich And he is looking for exactly this. And he comes and he finds one that causes him to liquidate all other stuff that he has, which is probably a pretty good stash. He liquidates it all on finding a pearl that far exceeds even what he expected. He's looking for it. And then he finds something that even surpasses his expectation. This great pearl grabs his heart in such a way that he looks at everything else he has and goes... I'm going to trade all of this for that pearl. And he buys up the pearl. He finds something even better than what he was looking for. So the point of this parable is really that the kingdom is even for rich people and for those that are searching for it. So the first one is like you've got people who are all different kinds of economic levels are welcome to be part of this kingdom and those who aren't looking for it and find it by accident, and those who are looking for it and find it, they, get, they both get the kingdom. The response is the same no matter who you are, no matter what you have, and the cost is the same. Everything. It's worth everything. And so that's the point of this one. It's worth more than everything else in his life combined. So, let's just draw out some implications about this parable. I've got one, two, three, four i got four things that this passage tells us about the kingdom. Number one, Jesus' kingdom is overlooked by most people. It's overlooked by most. This treasure is hidden in the field, and who knows how many people have walked right by it. The kingdom is like a fine pearl that's buried somewhere in here, and somebody has missed it to where this merchant finds it, and he sees something. He sees a value in something that not everyone else sees and it changes him. So Jesus' kingdom is gonna be overlooked by most. In fact, he describes it as hidden. And we see that in other places where not everyone will see and understand, not everyone has eyes to see and ears to hear. Not everybody finds it, in fact, most miss it. In fact, that goes back to the parable of the four soils, is that the kingdom is gonna fall on a lot of different hearts, and there's gonna be a variety of responses, but only one in four in that parable actually really understands what they have and produces a crop. Most people miss it. Only a very few will find it. Jesus said this back in his Sermon on the Mount when he was giving sort of the opening of the kingdom, an explanation of the kingdom in Matthew seven five through seven and in seven Matthew seven thirteen and fourteen. Here's what he says. He says, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Most people miss the gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and Those who find it are few. So not everybody finds the kingdom. Not everybody knows what's there. And also, not everybody finds it in the same way. Some people find it by accident. The kingdom just sort of smacks them in the face. Other people are on this quest to figure out what is the meaning of life. And they search it out and they find it. Some people are not looking for the kingdom. And some people are looking for the kingdom. And when they find it, they don't always find it in the same way. And that's true. If we were to hear the stories of how you came to trust in Jesus Christ, how you came into the kingdom, it would be a variety of stories in here. For some, it sort of hits you in the face. You weren't looking for it. You didn't care about it. You weren't interested. And all of a sudden, it just exploded in your face. It just all of a sudden was there. And some of you, it was a long search for the meaning of life or, or for um, answers to life's questions. And you finally found it. He finally found it. And so not every everyone finds it in the same way. One finds it accidentally and one finds it intentionally. Uh, there's a man named Philip Stapleton back in 2019 who loved to go like garage sailing. Any of you looking for deals? And so he's in England and he's out and he's looking and he goes to this thrift shop looking for deals and he sees this painting that he's really, really likes. And so he starts haggling with the owner and and they end up settling on a price of about $292 an hour in our money. And, um, and he's kind of kicking himself as he puts the painting in the car and drives home going, oh, I overpaid for that. I like it, but I, oh, I didn't win the deal. So he's a little bit depressed and he set the painting kind of in his office for six months. And then he picked it up and began looking at it. And down in the corner is the name written Picasso. And he accidentally bought one of Picasso's first paintings. And it's worth millions of dollars. And so he has to go, you know, get an insurance plan, all this stuff. He found it by accident, is the point. He wasn't looking for it. He bought it by accident. He was kicking himself. He thought he paid too much. And turns out he paid way less. It would have been worth everything in his life to buy that painting. So he found it by accident. And that's how some of us find the kingdom. And one finds it intentionally. We see this merchant who is searching for pearls and finds one that blows his mind that's worth everything. And he buys it. So not everybody finds it, most miss it, not everybody finds it in the same way. And this is what we need to know is that finding the kingdom is always grace. It's always an act of divine mercy that God allowed you to find the kingdom. I don't think the man in the field was all of a sudden like, "Man, I am pretty awesome at treasure hunting." He just stumbled across it. He just came across it. The kingdom is so unpredictable in who it comes to, and who finds it, and who really understands what they've found. And I think even the pearl hunter would be like, I have just hit the jackpot. I don't think he is taking any credit for the fact that he found this pearl. This pearl is far beyond anything that anyone would ever expect. So it's always an act of grace if you've found the kingdom, that you have had eyes to see what others have missed. It's always the God that gets the glory if we've found the kingdom. So it's unpredictable and it's always of grace because not everybody sees it. Not everybody finds it. And you have such a gracious privilege from God. God has been so kind to you to put you in a place where you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ regularly. You are tripping on treasure every day. If you've got the word of God in your home, if you have grown up in a Christian home, like just imagine the gracious privilege that God has given you, that you have, you have, you have the treasure, you have possession of the treasure. 40% of the world have ne- has never even heard the name of Jesus. And you've had the privileged opportunity that you get to hear him every day. You live in a treasure trove, and that is not by your own doing. That has purely been an act of God's grace. Uh, Secondly, Jesus' kingdom is the most valuable thing ever. Isn't that the response? Like immediately, as soon as they see the treasure, they go, this is everything. My whole life for this, instantaneously. And Jesus is making the point that the kingdom, that is a right response to the kingdom. That is a right response to the kingdom, is to all of a sudden see it for what it is, which is the most invaluable thing ever. It's not just enough to find the kingdom, you have to see it as valuable, right? If they simply found it and passed on, they would have been like everybody else. But the fact that they knew what they had found, they valued and treasured what they found. So, treasuring Jesus and his kingdom above all else is essential to the kingdom citizen. The kingdom citizen treasures the king, loves his kingdom. He knows what he has. He knows what he possesses. He knows that the kingdom is worth everything. So the question is not asking if you believe in Jesus. That's a good question. That's a Bible question. It's not even do you believe the right doctrines and sign on to the right things. It's do you treasure Jesus? Do you delight in his kingdom? Because that's what Jesus is offering is a kingdom that is so joyful and satisfying that it becomes your treasure. Here's the deal. You cannot overpay for the kingdom. It is always a good deal. The kingdom is always going to pay back more than it costs. Jesus says that. Whoever has left father, mother, lands, whatever, will be paid back a hundredfold in the life to come. It is always a good investment to invest in the kingdom. Always. You can never overpay for the kingdom of Jesus. No matter what it costs you, the return will always eventually be greater than the investment. And these two guys notice that immediately, that this is going to return a greater investment than all the rest of my life combined. Jesus' kingdom also is an all-in or all-out deal. You see that? Point number three, Jesus' kingdom is an all-in or all-out deal. So you don't see either of these guys trying to haggle on the price of trying to kind of compare, what's a, what's a comparable treasure? What, what's the market value? Let me look up on bluebook.com and see what the trade-in value is on this. That's not it. They know immediately that this is an all-in or all-out deal. And Jesus has been talking about that, and will continue to talk about that through the rest of his gospel, is that this is an all-in or all-out deal. You can't have your foot in, one foot in the kingdom boat of Jesus and one foot in the kingdom boat of something else. You can't haggle on the price. It's all in. You have to go in with both feet. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the trade is unimaginable splendor for unconditional surrender. Unimaginable splendor for unconditional surrender. Unless you take possession of this treasure, it does you no good. So you see these guys. They immediately, they find it, which is just an act of grace. They understand and they value what they've found. And then they take the action of actually possessing it. So the kingdom is all about finding, treasuring, and owning the kingdom of heaven, to to have it for yourself, to receive it for yourself. It's an all in or all out deal. If the kingdom is real and it is this valuable, then it has to be possessed. Right? You you need to take hold of it. This is the deal of a lifetime. This is the deal of an eternity. The kingdom is not just part of someone's life. It doesn't just have positive effects on your life, but to come under the kingship of Jesus and to live in his kingdom is life, all of life. It's an all-in or all-out deal. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew six nineteen through 24, Jesus says this. He says, "'Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth "'where moth and rust destroy, "'where thieves break in and steal, "'but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven.'" Where neither moth nor rust destroy, or where thieves do not break in and steal. That's what these guys are doing, right? I'm going to invest all in this treasure because my treasure might get lost. Mine will most certainly get lost, but they knew that they had an eternal treasure. They had something that would never lose value, would never be stolen. Listen to what it says here, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which tells us that this is all about God is going after human hearts. He doesn't want just our behavior, he doesn't just want our right thinking, he wants our hearts. The kingdom is about enrapturing human hearts in a glory that's far greater than any sin, any other kingdom, any other temptation. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's an all in or it's an all out deal. Jesus does this same thing in Matthew 19 when a rich young ruler comes and says, What do I need to do to enter into the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? And the man lists off the commandments, and Jesus goes, yes, you've got it, and, and, uh, but you lack one thing. He says, go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man walks away sad, because he had great wealth. So he had stumbled across, maybe was even seeking the treasure, and then when it stood in front of him and said, okay, the deal is the same for everybody, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're Uh, looking for it or not looking for it the price is the same which is everything it's a good deal it'll return an investment but it's the same for everybody it's either all in or all out and the man did the math and decided wasn't worth the deal and then just debriefs with his disciples because they're a little jarred by this in fact Matthew 19 I'll just read part of it for you they're a little bit jarred by this Jesus said to his disciples, this is Matthew 19, 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? If this is the standard, like who's going to make that deal? Who's going to do this? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said, See, we have left everything and followed you. So he's like, hey, we did the thing, right? We did it, Jesus. You're pretty impressed, right? We did what the rich guy couldn't do. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit down in his glorious kingdom, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So you enter humbly with the hands open going, everything I have for kingdom, please. And just like, yes, that's the right response to the kingdom. And then lastly, it's this. Jesus' kingdom is all about lavish joy, both God's and yours. I, I don't know if you realize this, but God takes great delight in saving people like you. He loves to do it. Why else would he do it? He doesn't need you. He didn't need a world. But he is the kind of God who delights in extending grace to people who don't deserve it. To giving a good, glorious treasure of a kingdom to people who just stumble on it. Some who are looking for it, some who don't. God is the most enjoyable, satisfying, and delightful being ever. When you look at the Trinity... And the mutual love and contentment that is found in the Trinity, it's overwhelming. And God created a world out of an overflow of love and affection that they wanted other creatures to enjoy what they get to enjoy nonstop. And then that creation rebelled, and this triune God still wanted to extend, even to a rebellious world, an opportunity to come back to him, to know him, And God set forth this plan that he might be enjoyed, that he might be delighted in, that he might be treasured above all else. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this idea of God, not as this big, stern, like angry, stingy killjoy who's just sitting up there but as a God who's just like I've got so much grace and I've got so many things to lavish on you and will you just receive it will you receive it through my son this idea that there is fullness of joy in God's presence and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore at your right hand God I have so many pleasures that I will enjoy forever Psalm 89 10 and 11 think about this for a day in your courts is better, meaning his presence, just enjoying God. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So just do the math. The greatest place that you could ever be, your, the most amazing thing that you could ever imagine, you get a thousand days there, but you could trade it for one day just with God. And that would be better. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. That's what makes heaven so wonderful. What the new heavens and the new earth are so great is that God is such a great treasure. He says, I would rather, this is still Psalm 89, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor and no good thing does he withhold. He is so satisfying and delightful and perfect he is what your soul is craving. And this parable is telling us that these, peop- these two guys immediately found the thing that their soul was craving and in their joy surrendered everything else to have it. God is the most enjoyable, satisfying, delightful being ever. God has extended this kingdom to you as an overflow of his own joy. Think, Listen to this, Luke 12 this is what Jesus says, Luke twelve thirty-two through 34. He says, fear not, little flock. So Jesus is just tenderly speaking to his followers at this moment. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It makes him so happy and joyful to offer the kingdom. That's a huge statement. God is so happy. It is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourself money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So God extends his kingdom to you, not begrudgingly as if his son went, you know, I did die and rise for them. Oh, I guess I have to save them now. That's not it. That's not it. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I can just imagine, like, if this parable was real, you got God and the angels and all this stuff, like, the man's plowing, like, watch this. He's about to hit the treasure. Oh, he found it. Awesome. And he got it, right? The man looking for pearls going, okay. He's just going to dig that next box way down in the bottom. Ah, oh, he found it. And God takes such a delight and joy. There is more rejoicing over one sinner that repents in heaven, right? More rejoicing in heaven. Over one sinner repents, than 99 who need no repentance. God loves to give the kingdom. He does so out of joy. His kingdom is about his own joy in giving it. Think about Jesus. Hebrews twelve two. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross for you out of joy. <laughs> You know how awful the cross was, right? And Jesus went there for joy. Now, we know from the narrative accounts that it was not an easy thing for him to do. But ultimately, underneath that, the triune God put the salvation in place, put the salvation plan in place, and executed it from a place of joy. Isaiah 52 and 53 says that it was the Lord's will to crush him. That sounds really harsh, and that God the Father would crush the Son, but the Son was willing. This was a triune, organized, executed, it was joy to bring sinners back into his presence by going to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to, the found, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So God has extended his kingdom to you as an overflow of his own joy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And your, your eternal delight, your eternal joy is found in God's joy. His giving of grace out of delight and joy in his own heart is to be received and will be the source and fountain of your joy. And we see that in the, in the parable, right? It says that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And this is not to say that the kingdom is for sale, that you can sort of buy it with possessions, This is a, in his joy, man, he just lets it go. His joy came before, he didn't sell it in order to get joy. He found the treasure and the treasure just brought forth a joy that just loosed his grip on everything else. Like everything else was relativized in value compared to this kingdom. Whatever I've got to get out of my hands to get my hands on that, that's what I'll do because it matters so much to me. Because his delight now was radically shifted to something else. Think of the disciples. Jesus comes to them and says, leave your tax collector booth, Matthew, and follow me. And he's like, okay. Just leave your life, your security, your identity, everything. Follow me. And they do. Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree, right? He's sort of the one. Matthew's kind of like the first guy. He's not looking for the kingdom. Kingdom comes up, goes, yeah, you with me. And he does. Another tax collector, Zacchaeus, is searching him out. Like, i got to hear about this Jesus climbs up in a tree, and then Jesus goes, I'm coming to your house. Okay, I found what I'm looking for. And then he, he, he talks about how he is going to give up everything. He's going to give up his identity, his financial security. He's going to give up everything in order to have the kingdom. And Jesus goes, salvation has come to this house because his grip was loosed on everything else. And his joy was now found in something else in a way that was just, like, mind-blowing, Irrational. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six thirty three, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul from jail writes in Philippians 3 about his experience of this, this same thing, of selling everything to have the kingdom. And he's in prison. It's not like he's having a great time following Jesus in this sense. It's not like things are working out and his life is getting better in a worldly sense. But he writes this in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He said, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And you just hear his delight and his joy. Philippians is such a joyful letter because he's like, i found so much joy in Jesus. That doesn't make sense to anyone else because it seems like I've lost everything, but I've really gained everything. And that's the upside downness of the kingdom. He says, I've, I've found Christ and I have been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now I know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings, be, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul has had this finding the treasure in the field experience and he wouldn't trade it Back. He wouldn't trade back at all. So, the bottom line is that that's the offer that is on the table for you today. Somehow, whether you intended to or not, whether you meant to be in this room or not, whether you've stumbled across the treasure in the field by accident, or maybe you've been searching for this your whole life, today you have the opportunity, you have the treasure, you have the kingdom right in front of you. And the king's offer to you today is the same as it has always been for 2,000 years. The whole Christ and his kingdom is yours for the absolutely amazing price of everything you have. Just come to him. And maybe you don't know how to do that. That's fine. He teaches you how to do that. His word teaches you how to, how to step fully into this kingdom. But this sense of whatever it is that I'm finding my identity in, whatever it is that I'm most ashamed of, whatever it is I have so much confidence in, if I will open my hands up and go, okay, blank check, I'm pushing it all to the middle of the table because you just look so much better than all of this. I'm scared to do it, but I'm going to do it. Kingdom is yours. And he'll, he'll help you figure out how to do it. All of you, sin, guilt, shame, he takes that too. Sell it. Sell it. Money, success, family, all of your pain, all of your regret, all of your rage, All your good works, all your religion, all your accomplishments, if you'll part with it, you can have the kingdom. The thing that would bring the king the most joy and glory is for you to find joy in his kingdom, to delight yourself in him, to trust in him, to put your identity in him. All that you're ashamed of, all of it, and take possession of him and his kingdom. And you can do that now. You can step into his kingdom now. I want to tell this story here. There's a, in Cairo, there's a grave of a man named William Borden. And he was, this is, he was born in the late 1800s and um, was heir to the Borden Milk Company, which doesn't mean a lot to us today, but was a pretty prestigious business at the time. And he was the heir to that. And while he was attending school at Yale, he came to know Christ in 1909. And upon coming to know Christ, he wrote in his Bible, no rivals. His parents tried to talk him out of this call that he felt to take the gospel to Muslim people. And he wrote in his Bible, no refusals. He was giving up so much to go do this thing, to be an agent of the kingdom in some place where there is no gospel And so he went to Egypt, and after only four months of zealous ministry, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. Really didn't even get a chance to start his ministry. And as he was dying, someone asked him about what he thought about his decisions. Was this a waste? Should he not have done this? Consider all that you could have done if you'd have done that. And he simply said and wrote in his Bible one last time, no regrets, no rivals, no refusals, no regrets. And on his tombstone in Cairo... This basically failed missionary, 25 years old, had such joy that the kingdom was satisfying, even if it didn't look like he was a success at all, that this idea of no rivals, no refusals, no regrets, they put this phrase on his tombstone that it says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Why did he sell everything for kingdom? And why was he so happy in doing it? Now, I'm not saying that you have to do the exact same thing he did, but, he's, but his life was so upside down because he found a kingdom. He found a kingdom that he didn't expect to find. And everything else, his whole life, it was a glad trade, even a short life and a painful death. Apart from the faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And that's really kind of at the heart of what this enjoy, display, and share is, is that we have found a treasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to enjoy it with all of our hearts, with everything that we are. And when that happens, our hands release all the other things that the world cares about. We're happily trading that in for kingdom. And that becomes a display of his glory. Just like this man. We cannot make sense of this man unless Jesus rose from the dead. Unless the kingdom is real, your life makes no sense. And then we have the opportunity to point to treasure. We get to share it, right? So this is at the heart. This is my favorite parable because this is so at the heart of what I want this church to be, what I want my life to be. It's like, how, what else could I sell to get more treasure? What, what else could I give up that would just be so weird? It would be such a display of his glory and the, satisfying, the satisfaction of knowing Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's just at the heart of it. So what would it look like if we were 100% satisfied in Jesus and his kingdom. I wonder what that would do to our jobs, what that do, would do to our marriages, if the delight was in his kingdom first, in our singleness, what would that do to our parenting finances, our five or 10 year plans, our retirement plans, what would it do to our relationships, to politics or culture, suffering, persecution, tragedy, and what would it do to our church? If we were the kinds of people that were regularly just enjoying the treasure of Christ's kingdom and displaying transformed lives and sharing that with the world. Bottom line is not what we do, but what Christ does. The bottom line of this is not what these men did to get the treasure, it's that the treasure's worth it. The kingdom's worth it. The bottom line is what the treasure is all about, what the kingdom is all about. And so let's go, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. And if you're just stumbling across the treasure for the first time, just pray to God and say, God, I want this. I want Christ. I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from my righteousness. I want to turn from anything and everything else. I want to let it out of my hands. I want to sell it because you're so much better. So whatever that is in your heart, and your life, I pray that you right now in this moment would behold Christ's kingdom through this parable and that you would respond to him. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for this parable, these two parables. And they just tell us so much about your kingdom as we look at how it's small and insignificant, yet powerful, and it goes everywhere, and not everybody gets it. We also get these parables that just say it's worth everything. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be our perspective of your kingdom. Open our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this good kingdom, this wonderful treasure. God, help us not to walk by it. Help us not to miss it. Whatever it is in our hands that we need to let go of in order to take hold of it, I pray that we would, we would do that because, and we would do so in joy knowing that the trade is worth it. The investment is so good. So God, I do pray. I pray that you would work in our church now. May everyone today find your kingdom. May we all treasure it more than anything we have, and everything we have combined. We ask these things in your name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.